بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ومولانا وحبيبنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته My name is Um Abdullah and I'm very happy to welcome you to another episode of our podcast series Left or Right, The Straight Path, Please. Today, inshallah, we will be taking our first episode on feminism and its implications for Muslim women. So this is part one, which is focusing on the first wave of feminism. But before we begin, inshallah, let's start off with Imam Haddad's dua for seeking knowledge. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Allahumma inni nawaitu at-ta'alluma wa-ta'alim wa-tadhakura wa-tadhkir wa-nafa' wa-intifa' wa-ifada wa-istifada wa-lhatha ala tamassuki bi-kitabillahi wa-sunnati rasulih wa-dua ila al-huda wa-dalalata ala al-khayr ابتغاء وجه الله ومرضاته وقربه وثوابه سبحانه وتعالى. You can find the translation for that on our Instagram page at MiskWomen. And if you haven't joined us on Facebook yet in our private group MiskWomen Halaqa, then please come over there and we'd be really happy to see you inshallah. Today is a very important and foundational topic because it is our introduction to feminism. And as Muslim women living in contemporary world and living in a time where we feel often that feminist ideas are surrounding us all the time and informing so much of our narrative and informing so much about how other people perceive us and how we perceive ourselves. And often it can be quite overwhelming in many ways. And amongst them are the fact that we feel sometimes that we need to justify our existence. We feel that we need to justify why we wear hijab. We feel that we need to justify so many things that are misunderstood in our religion and a lot of the time the focus on the issues that people don't understand have got to do with the status of women in Islam and that's because that is constantly being compared to the status of women in non-Muslim and particularly in Western societies. So inshallah, as part of our program here and our intention to try and shed some light and clarify what are the origins of the ideas which have shaped and are still shaping our societies, then we are taking this opportunity now to try and have a good look at the first wave of feminism, which is where the whole movement started, and to see what it was that those women were fighting and struggling for how their struggle for certain basic rights in society has informed and really created this whole discourse of feminism in the West and how it is that Muslim women are implicated in that. Where do we stand with regards to Western or European or British women or American women's struggle for the vote? Where do we stand 
in terms of their struggle and campaign and very uh, bitter battle that they fought in order to get their basic human rights, which were granted to us through divine revelation over 14 centuries ago. So how do we perceive what's happened historically in European and British colonies? And how do we understand ourselves in relation to that and in relation to ourselves as women on the straight path, as women on the Sirat al-Mustaqim, who already have those rights? And it is very important that we establish these foundational principles, that we understand the foundational issues, and that we're able to separate ourselves as Muslim women within a tradition, which has got nothing to do with the tradition that these women had gone through and fought for the same rights that women in Islam had had from the beginning. So, inshallah, that's the point of our podcast today. And I'm focusing specifically on the UK or on England, really, and looking at that as opposed to focusing perhaps on North America because the issues that the women fought for through what's called the suffrage movement are a little bit different to the issues that the women fought for in the suffrage movement in North America because in North America the issues were complicated by race and by having come out of the slavery era So when the women there sought the vote and when they sought the franchise, which is being granted the vote and more political participation, then they were really coming from a position where they were inferior even to black men who were freed slaves or who were the next generation of freed slaves because they were still not granted the vote according to their gender, whereas black men who had been very much of an underclass obviously were given the vote because of their gender. So the women there felt that this was extremely biased against them and so their struggle for themselves was also a struggle against black men and was a struggle against those who they had known in their social structure to have been on a lesser footing than them originally. So even though abolition had occurred officially and through the law, then of course there's not abolition in people's minds and hearts for a very long time and many people have still never really abolished that concept of an underclass of people who came from the era of slavery. So the thing is that the The rights that women were fighting for were not purely about their own issues, but they were also very much entrenched in the social context at the time, which was a very heavily racialized context. So that adds another element or another level of complexity to what we're looking at. So if we look only for the sake of example and for the sake of needing to establish these ideas and paradigms and ways of thinking about women, Uh, through the history of the suffrage movement in England, then inshallah we're able to see clearly what the women's issues were in isolation from other complexities or um, competing factors. Okay, so what's happened is we have arrived at the middle to the end of the 19th century. As we have seen in previous episodes... The last couple of hundred years of Europe, and particularly in England, which was one of the main centres of thought and change, enlightenment, reformation, all these things that have gone on and really fundamentally changed the society from 
a religious to a secular type of society. We have British colonialism at its height. Um, the crown or the jewel of the British colonialism is India. We have vast wealth coming in to England through its colonies and also through its participation in slavery. And we have this incredible industrialization that's taken place. And then we looked at Karl Marx and his views on that and pushing for workers' rights. There was also, well, just prior to that, a couple of revolutions in France where now people are agitating, overthrowing power and authority structures and trying to bring about more democracy and more equality amongst people in the different aspects of their societies. So this is kind of our backdrop. And throughout all of that, the role of women and the place of women and the laws regulating the lives of women didn't really change very much. And you also have to remember that not so long before all of that, women were being burnt at the stake for being considered witches. And women theologically have always been considered an inferior sex to men. And that's got to do with the fact that in the biblical story of Adam and Eve and eating the forbidden apple, that generally speaking in Christian theology, Eve is considered to be the one who led Adam to eat from the forbidden tree. And that his downfall and that his disobedience of God was caused by her temptation and her leading him into an act of disobedience. So women have carried with them always this concept of original sin. And it's also known that clergy, religious clergy in the church would often have debates about whether or not women were human beings. Were they half jinn? Were they half human? Were they real? Did they have souls? So these were conversations that had taken place at various times. So we can see from that that already women were occupying a place whereby their very humanity and their very existence was already considered to be somewhat or a lot less than men and there were many laws and social regulations and etiquettes which confirmed that. Also in extension to those really fundamental ideas which had been carrying on for a few centuries at least, if not pretty much from the beginning, we also have how women are represented in art and literature at the time, and particularly in literature where we often think of the 19th century and women in the 19th century characterised in famous books such as Pride and Prejudice, in the books of the Bronte sisters, and that they occupied places in society where they didn't really do much except try and get themselves a rich man, or they were more interested in the frivolities or the trivialities of a luxury lifestyle. So a lot of those books depicted a great depth in character of these women. But if we look at the social roles of those women, then they weren't very complex. They were wealthy women living a life of luxury and not really doing very much. However, this is actually contradicted by the statistics at the time which show that by about 1871 that 32% of the workforce involved women and the majority of that was in domestic work and also in factory work, of course, because of this industrialization. And so 
women were busy in the public sphere, which is in contradiction to the type of literary myths which were put out that there were separate spheres for men and women, that men were in the public sphere and women were in the private sphere. And that's not necessarily true or accurately reflected in those depictions. And as well as there being a large portion of working women in paid labour, there was also a large proportion of women working in voluntary work. And the majority of those women who were trying to improve the educational standards for women or who were trying to improve some of the conditions that women were facing in factories and in the workplace were women who came from the church. And it's only through the church that they really got a legitimate voice to act and to try and do something sort of along the lines of missionary work, but within their own societies where because of the word of God and because of their Christian duty, they had to see to those who were uh, less well off than themselves or struggling and they needed to try and uplift them. A lot of those Christian women and voluntary Christian organizations also had links to the abolition movement, but it wasn't really the abolition movement that gave them their platform. It was really the church that gave them their platform. But by about 1866, there were the first organized campaigns for the vote. Now, the reason for that is twofold. Number one, women knew that the laws that were in place regarding their income inheritance, uh, ownership of property, and even changing their name and the custody of their children, that they were very, very heavily weighed against the right of women to have any ownership there. So as it was that a woman who was unmarried was able to keep her income, which was obviously far less than what a man uh, earned in his job, and also domestic work never paid well. So an unmarried woman could keep her income, but once a woman became married, she lost her job, all her income or anything that she had in terms of property, inheritance, or any type of wealth became her husband's. And if the husband divorced her, then she was not given custody of her children. So the first women that campaigned for changes to the law not only campaigned to have those laws changed so that they became more equal and really reflected and, and tried to establish better rights for women within them, but they also wanted women to become elected members of parliament so that they could go in there and firsthand develop these laws so that they could have them passed and therefore influence and change women's lives for the better. And that's very significant because if we look at the rights that Muslim women were given, they were given by God. They were divinely revealed laws and they're not laws that any human being is able to change. So the thing is that when Muslim women were given all those rights in those same five areas, nobody has ever been able to change that, to reduce any part of it, to alter it to the extent where those laws become invalid or useless, never. 
And so all the interpretations of the applications of those laws since then have always been within the framework of knowing that this is divine revelation. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants for his creation. And it's the job of men and women to understand the spirit of those laws and the application of those laws to make sure that what they are intended for is actually manifested and used justly. So the very framework in which the laws exist and have been applied and interpreted to fit different things that go on in society, interpreted to fit the different changes that societies have gone through over the last 14 centuries is something that people have always been engaged in but within a very particular framework which of course is the sharia so it's a constant development within the boundaries of that so as opposed to these human created laws which we find for example here in british society where any person can come and propose a bill for legislative change and that may or may not go into effect according to the politics of the time, the economics of the time and the social values and mores of the time. So this is a really important point. There had been some small changes made during the 19th century and one of the earlier ones was a change in the law in the custody of infants and this actually was enacted in 1839 and it was then that women were allowed to apply for the custody of their children under the age of seven if they had separated from their husbands. However this was probably unlikely to have happened very often because prior to 1857 Divorce was only possible via a private act of parliament. So a woman could not go and seek a divorce in a very public way or through a court, for example, um, because it basically wasn't allowed. And if there was to be a divorce between a couple, then it could only be enacted from the side of the man and all he had to do was prove the adultery of his wife. So he had to come forward with an accusation about her character and her behavior and her honor in order to separate from her regardless of what the real situation was. Again we know in Islam that if a woman is accused of adultery then it is upon the accuser to come forward with four witnesses who actually saw the act of adultery and if it is that they are not able to prove the fact that they saw it then they get punished, not the woman who's been accused. So the whole concept of a woman's honor is very, very important in Islam and it is really protected through this rather complex series of needing to prove and to have witnesses to show that it is otherwise. Whereas here in this case in England, then all a man had to do was, well, it says prove, but really all he had to do was make some claims and it was more likely that the court would believe him rather than not believe him. And so the change that was made and that allowed for a woman to seek a divorce was that she had to prove two things. The first, the same, that her husband had committed adultery and secondly, that he had been cruel or had deserted her. So what was weighed against her in terms of a successful divorce was almost impossible to overcome, even though there appeared to be some development in the law which recognised that she could seek that. And then in 1870, 
Prior to that, a woman's property, past, present and future, including her wages, had all been the legal property of her husband upon marriage. But in 1870, that was changed and the law allowed women to keep property or income they had acquired after marriage. Again, if we compare that to Islam, all a woman's wealth is her wealth. Every single thing that she earns of income, of inheritance, gifts, charity, zakah, any wealth that comes to her is her wealth and she is not obliged to dispose of that in any way whatsoever, particularly towards her husband who is responsible for paying for her or to her father or brother or uncle or any other relative including her children if she doesn't want to spend on them and nobody has a right to take her property because it is hers. So the fact that a woman was now being able to keep her property after marriage was something that these women only began to have the right to in 1870, which is not that long ago. Then in 1882, there was an extension to that act and that included all property and income, regardless of when it had been acquired, either prior to marriage or after marriage, it could now be retained by the woman. So you can see that there were a couple of steps towards recognizing women's rights to be able to own property and to seek a divorce but it was very little really and the the first point about having custody of her children um, Islamic family law is very heavily geared towards the mother retaining custody and to think back like this 14 centuries ago where women had this law this right enshrined in the Sharia, which was given as a divine right by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have their children after marriage, to maintain custody of them and also to seek a divorce and to prove that if the husband had been neglectful of her and not fulfilled her rights and she had every grounds to separate from him. So we can see that Muslim women have had already from the beginning these very same laws that these women in England were fighting for not so long ago and we need to remember that. Then by the early part of the 20th century around 1906 there was a group called the Women's Political and Social Union which was formed and led by a woman called Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughter Christabel Pankhurst and their motto was deeds not words. They didn't want to talk anymore about the suffrage movement. They didn't want to talk about women having property or women giving the or women being given the franchise, being able to vote or even become members of parliament. They wanted to go and do something about it. They were the first to organize widespread marches and protests and they put a lot of pressure on local members of parliament. They were very busy in the printing and distribution of pamphlets and they would stand on street corners and talk to people and try and educate people about why it was so important that women should be given the right to vote. Because they thought that if a woman is given political participation, then she will be in the best position to bring about legislative change, either through pressuring others in parliament or, as we've said, by actually entering into parliament herself. However, the people that supported them had tried. There had been a few 
private members' bills, so members of parliament who'd put through their own bills for seeking for changes to the law to give women the right to vote. They'd all been rejected, they'd all been defeated, and the Prime Minister at the time, uh, Herbert Asquith, was uh, deeply opposed to women's suffrage. And so things hadn't gone well for them, and so they decided to take matters into their own hands and start to get a bit of violent. And there was a two-week period in 1913 where this group committed more than 80 violent and militant acts. So what we would call domestic terrorism is what they engaged in trying to push for this cause. So they blew up post boxes on the street, they smashed windows, they destroyed other property, they burnt down a portion of the house who of the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, whose name was David Lloyd George. They had made a chemical bomb. It didn't go off. And there was even one woman whose name was Emily Wilding Davison who threw herself in front of King George's horse at the Epsom Derby. And she died a couple of days later from the injuries that she sustained. So there was some loss of life. There was a lot of damage to property. And several women now found themselves in court on charges of arson and destroying public property. And they were really quite out of control. So they were imprisoned, often for, say, four months or more. And the first suffragette who actually went on a hunger strike, her name was Marion Wallace Dunlop. And she was the first to be in prison, actually, in 1909, so a little bit before all this craziness. And she was in prison for writing on a wall inside the parliament. So above the parliamentary chamber in the House of Commons, there was a public gallery and some women had entered there and written some slogans and statements on the wall about giving women um, the freedom to vote. So she was charged and imprisoned for that, for destroying public property, for vandalism, basically. And when she went into prison, she went on a hunger strike And most interestingly is that she didn't go on a hunger strike because of the cause for which she was in there, but she went on a hunger strike because she was given a second-class cell and she wanted to be upgraded to a first-class prison cell which was more comfortable and had more privileges. So she decided to do something about that and thereafter the other female prisoners followed suit because they saw how much attention she was getting and although they weren't hunger striking for an improvement in their prison conditions, They were hunger striking to bring more attention to the cause and this suddenly became a big issue for the government because now they had all these women who were doing an extreme act and it was a real public relations disaster for the government who tried to put them away, shut them away and make sure that they were punished for their crimes and misdemeanours but what happened was that it ended up bringing more attention to what they were struggling for. So in order to overcome that, the government decided that they would force feed them. And really the force feeding was described by some of these women and it was more like an act of torture where they were pinned down and they had tubes inserted into their nasal passages and they were forced to ingest some type of liquefied food. And this, of course, 
caused a lot of damage to their noses, to their faces, to the rest of their bodies where they were pinned down by a number of others. And some of them suffered health issues for the rest of their lives. And if it wasn't working through their nose, then they would then have a tube inserted down their throat. And it was really quite a disaster and they were becoming quite sick. So the government quickly put through a bill and it got nicknamed the Cat and Mouse Bill. So it was called the Prisoners Temporary Discharge Act. And that's what it came out as. And that was in April 1913. And so whenever the prison doctor saw that a woman was becoming weak or too weak from the hunger strike, then he could authorise for her to be released, to go home, to regain her strength and become well again and then when she was healthy enough she would be put back in prison to finish her sentence and so then of course once she was in there she'd start the hunger strike again and the whole process would start and this very vicious circle of bad behavior by everybody just continued. It was kind of lucky for them thereafter in 1914 when World War I commenced because Emmeline Pankhurst decided to stop all the militant activity of the WSPU and to concentrate all their attention on serving the war effort. Now what about the rest of society at the time while all this was going on? And there was quite a large groundswell of support for the women amongst other women, but not necessarily all of them. And so a lot of the support came from working class women who really bore the brunt of a lot of these difficult laws that were in place. And there was a lot of support also from middle class white women, which was where all these leaders of these organisations had come from anyway. And... There, but there was also some opposition to it in both groups. And one of the women's groups that opposed suffrage, and there were quite a lot, and they were wealthy women too, so they did come from wealthy families, they had wealthy husbands, and so they were able to exert some political influence sort of on the sidelines there. One of them, whose name was Violet Markham, said that because they saw women as complementary and not equal to men, then they required an increased level of education to participate, but only to the extent that, and she says, to seek fruitful diversity of political function, not a stultifying uniformity. And that's really interesting today when we look at what's called the cancel culture or when we look at how certain feminist groups today actually try and silence opposition and they try and make sure that only their particular views are the dominant views and the voices that are being heard. So already at the time there were the seeds of that and the women who were opposing the suffragette movement didn't want those women to speak for them. They still wanted to speak for themselves, even if they were in opposition to them. There were a lot of men in the society who supported the suffragettes, and some of those were parliamentarians, and there were also a lot of men who didn't. And the majority of the men in the political system who opposed them were from the Conservative Party and as we've mentioned before the Prime Minister at the time was Conservative and he was deeply opposed as was Lord Curzon who had been 
one of the colonial rulers in India, and he became the president of an anti-suffrage movement. And by 1914, they had over 100 branches of this across England. And the interesting thing, and I guess we can assume in some ways that the conservatives would have been opposed because politically it wasn't good for them because if there were a lot of women who were pushing for change, then that would alter the electorate and would alter the votes of the already empowered and politically franchised men who had wealth and who would vote for the conservatives. So they were worried that their base would be undermined and that there would be a lot of oppositional support and that they would lose. So not only did they feel that it wasn't a traditional role for women or that it was somehow unnatural or unattractive for women to want to be involved in politics, they were also scared about their political situation and what it would mean for them in power. And then interestingly, the Labour Party, which had been developing sort of prior to that Uh, really coming out of the Marxist working class, pushing for the class struggle and equality, their view on the suffrage movement was very restricted because at the same time there still wasn't universal male suffrage. So only men who had money and property could vote at the time and working class men weren't a part of that. So they didn't want to support women's suffrage until there was universal male suffrage, until that had been achieved. And as it is with the Labour Party that always they put class over gender and so they were worried too that should women now get this suffrage and men not have it, that it would somehow undercut men's labour rights and that it would provide a cheap second-class reserve of enfranchised labour through having this huge class now of working women who had rights, who had a lot of changes that would put them on the same footing as men, but the men themselves weren't yet given all the rights that they should have been given. So interestingly, they actually didn't really support it. Uh, There was a lot of propaganda and the positive propaganda that went out, and this was from the conservative women who supported the suffrage movement, was of feminine roles and stereotypes and that a woman could still be a real woman and a homemaker and a wife and raise her children, but she could also have a bit of a better education and, and be involved in the public sphere. And then the negative propaganda that went out, particularly from groups Uh, in support of Lord Curzon and the anti-suffrage movement was that the type of women who were pushing for this change were wild, they were masculine, hysterical, unattractive, unnatural, and that men would be at home doing the domestic work and that women would be out and that they would neglect their fundamental role, which was their household and their families. And then World War I came and all of that changed and the women wholeheartedly set about supporting the war effort. After that, or towards the end of the war in 1917, then in the Parliament there was a review of the issues, which had been a bit quiet for those last three years while Britain went full force into World War I. And by June 1917 then there was a bill for the representation of the People Act which had been passed. And so it meant now that another 
around 13 million men had been enfranchised because the issue there with the men was that so many of them were now offshore and fighting wars and so when it was time to have a general election they weren't actually present and so they needed to have that taken to account for so that these men who had been fighting in wars even though they weren't actually there um, that they could still be enfranchised and allowed to vote. So that meant that they brought in a more universal suffrage for men uh, because they needed them to vote now. And if you go and offer your life for the country and then they tell you that you can't vote uh, because you're not good enough to vote or you're not in a social position, then that's obviously a moral and ethical issue. So they extended the vote to all men to uh, account for that. And then they allowed a very limited change for women and after there had been some discussion, they gave the vote to women who were over the age of 30 and who had a property qualification so that they occupied or owned property over a certain value and they had to prove that they were the head woman of the household. So it would be a mother or a grandmother or an older sister or somebody so that they weren't like the young sister who was dependent on everybody, for example. So there were a number of theories about why the vote or the partial vote was granted in 1918 and none of them had anything to do with the militant suffragette movement. One of them was that they were being rewarded now for their wartime patriotism. Another one said that they needed to balance the enfranchisement of working class men. Another view thought that the campaign prior to the war had been successful enough in shifting some of the attitudes of the parliamentarians, but it was an ongoing thing. It wasn't about certain militant activities. And that after the war, there was just sort of a general change in societal attitudes. So none of that's got anything to do with this militant suffragette movement and it has to be noted too that it was not until 1928 which was another whole 10 years after that that the Equal Franchise Act was passed and that all women over the age of 21 were then given the right to vote and Winston Churchill who became the British Prime Minister in the World War II that he was very very bitterly opposed to it and right to the very end, he fought it and he did not want women uh, universally to get the vote. And he had a special note recorded in the cabinet meetings showing that he disapproved of it. So right to the end, there was really, really deep opposition. Again, if we look at ourselves as Muslim women, which man opposed the changes that came to the lives of Muslim women with the advent of Islam? Uh, can we name one? I don't think we can. I don't think I've ever read or heard of there being any opposition from Muslim men and from the men, the Sahaba, who were of the first generation to any of the laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed, whether that be towards the poor, uh, the slaves at the time, whether that be towards women or children or to the mushrikeen, to the polytheists who were fighting the Muslims. Every single time that there was an issue about people's rights, then the Muslims were always told through the revelation to fear Allah, to have taqwa, 
to follow the Prophet ﷺ and to have mercy. And even when Sayyida Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, when she was accused of adultery, and then when her father Sayyidina Abu Bakr anhu, when he then withheld the money that he had been giving as charity to his uh, relation, I think it was his cousin or one of his extended family who was very poor and he used to look after him. And then he found out that this man had actually been one of those who had gone around and spread these rumors about his daughter and he wanted to now not pay him that money. And then an ayah was revealed uh, telling him to, to pay him and to continue that act of mercy. So even when the best of the community felt that there was something inside of themselves, then an ayah was revealed, a law was revealed, something was revealed, or they were told by the Prophet ﷺ, no, you don't oppose that, and that Allah knows best, and that a Muslim should have this open heart and this mercy towards all people all the time. And I don't know any man who opposed any of these changes, and in fact it's been the men and the male jurists since that time until now, who have made sure that the fundamental principles of the Sharia regarding women and women's rights have always been maintained. Now, does that mean that there has been no transgressions of that? No, it doesn't. And there are transgressions. And this is what makes problems in our communities is when people transgress these laws, either through their ignorance or either through ignorant cultural practices that have begun to encroach on the proper establishment and practice and implementation of the Sharia. So, of course, these things happen because we're dealing with people, but no one ever has changed the fundamental meaning and the fundamental application of those laws for women. So there are huge contrasts between the way in which women struggled for their rights in Britain, for example, and in the way in which Muslim women never had to struggle for any of those things and that they were given their rights fully and completely and they have been fully and completely maintained in a formal sense, and it's only people who don't get it who try and undermine that and do otherwise. Okay, so we'll just uh, point out a couple more interesting things before we go on and have a bit of a deeper look at what are the implications for this for Muslim women. And it should be noted too that, as we've said, in 1928 in Britain, women got full suffrage. And there were some countries before that who'd granted women the right to vote, and there were some after that. So the very first country actually was New Zealand, and they had given women the right to vote at the age of 21 without any restrictions in 1893. So that they were the first. Afterwards, there was Finland in 1900, Norway in 1913, Russia in 1917, Canada, Germany and Poland in 1918 and some states in America had allowed it beforehand but it became universal I believe in 1920 in the United States and Australia gave in 1902 although they didn't give indigenous women the right to vote or indigenous men either until 1962 which is very late and the most interesting I find are France and Italy 
who did not give women the right to vote until after World War II in 1945, and Switzerland did not give women the full right to vote until 1971. And look when they gave women the right to vote, and look when Islam gave women their full rights and without any restriction upon those rights, okay, 14 centuries ago. Some of the issues that women campaigned for when they did get into the parliament, um, the very first issue was on alcohol and the banning of alcohol or putting prohibitions on alcohol. This was from um, Nancy Astor, who had actually got into parliament through a by-election. She wasn't directly voted as a, a candidate through a major election, but her husband had held the seat the seat of Plymouth Sutton, and he had passed away. And so she kind of got in through his um, influence and the fact that she was his wife. But nevertheless, she did get in in 1920. And in her maiden speech, she spoke about alcohol and its damage to families and the economy. And other issues that women campaigned for were, again, to do with marriage and family rights, divorce laws, child endowment, and issues that really were very particular to women. And then what happened after that and in between then and the beginning of World War II was that two, and this is really important now, is that there were two ideological positions that began to develop. One was what they called new feminism, which was exactly what we've just said about women campaigning specifically for women's issues and for laws and for changes and for things like child and maternity health centres and for everything that would enable women to be protected and to be able to fulfill their role as women, as uh, wives, as mothers, as homekeepers, and to fulfill the traditional gender roles associated with women. And then in opposition to them, and there was a split, what developed was equality feminism, which was seeking gender neutrality in the laws. So they wanted blanket reform, which would neutralize anything to do with gender and traditional roles and anything that was traditionally associated with women. So it really became an issue of protective laws versus a restrictive view of the laws. So New feminism thought that they needed laws to protect women and equality feminism saw that as being a restriction because it was maintaining women in a traditional role. And there was a certain Mrs. Stocks from the new feminist ideology or the new feminist position and she spoke out against the equality feminism and she said that it's a very poor feminism because to say that, well, because men have this, we want it too, is very impoverished and it's not really looking at the issues that affect women directly. And this is very, very important because it wasn't their ideology that dominated. It was the ideology of equality feminism that won. And it's equality feminism that went right through the second and third and now into our fourth wave where we're looking at the abolishment of this concept of gender and just looking at this one law for everybody. And there was a woman called Vera Britton who said in the 1920s, and she was expressing how many saw the feminists 
and she described them as spectacled, embittered women, disappointed, childless, dowdy, and generally unloved. So this was an image that these equality feminists had conjured up in the minds of other people or had allowed them to conjure up when they looked at them and they saw them as being sort of unwomanly and, and unfeminine. And this was the ideology that went through after World War Two and into the second wave in the 1950s and early 1960s. Okay, so let's stop our little bit of history at this point and look now at what are the implications of this for Muslim women. Now, I want to focus on this concept of new feminism and equality feminism because if we look at new feminism, even though it became defeated by this other dominant view, we would look at it and the default would be to say, okay, this new feminism is about having protective laws for women and enabling women to fulfill their role, as we've said, of mothers and wives and homemakers and fulfilling traditional gender roles. Now, the default here would be for us as Muslim women to say, oh, Islam is like that. And that's what Islam does. So all the rights that women have in Sharia law are like that. And it's a very fine, subtle point, but I think that's one of the fundamental attitudes from our side that needs to change. Why do we automatically compare Islam to another ideology or another political movement or another way of thinking about women's issues? Why don't we compare those things to Islam? Okay, very, very small shift. Why don't we say and why don't we have the pride and the knowledge in our own faith tradition and in our own laws to say that this is what Islam is and how does everybody else compare to that? Okay, that's number one implication because as I said at the start of the whole episode that we as Muslim women, we feel torn between our loyalties. We feel that somehow we need to support women's rights, but at the same time we know that we have our own rights and we're constantly apologising. You know, we're constantly sort of trying to explain our way out of why we dress the way we do and why we feel that being a homemaker and a mother is still valid and an important role in society and trying to justify wanting to stay at home and look after our kids and be good wives and why we don't feel all the time that we want to go into a career and then when we do go into a career, why is it that so many women are miserable in that and then they end up missing out on marriage and all the rest of it. So the thing is that we're not privileging and positing our own understanding of the world and our own straight path understanding of the world and then comparing everything else. We're taking our distorted, often distorted view of our gene and our role in that and our rights that have been granted to us and the same rights that these women fought for in the most bitter way for decades and still haven't even achieved. And so we need to put our rights at the forefront and say this is what we have been given. This is the blessing of Islam. We never had to fight for one second for any of that. It was given to us. And we are proud of that and we know what that is and all of you can learn something from us rather than feeling that we need to justify ourselves when we don't. Um, other people should be justifying why they're still so backwards and we're not. And the other issue is that 
because we're just talking about some implications here and how we can really start to see that this model of feminism, which was generated and developed, uh, obviously the roots of it, as we've just explained or tried to explain, that particular model has gone on and changed uh, significantly since the late 19th century compared to what we have now as and what's sort of known or recognised or thought to be feminism now. And the thing is that we are constantly looking at this as a model and a way of perceiving women and women in society and applying that to our tradition. So not just are we not privileging our knowledge about our tradition, but we're also taking this other model and applying it retrospectively and trying to interpret our own history from the first generation of the Muslim society right through and using that to try and explain and look for feminist activism in our Muslim history and at the same time to try and look for a patriarchy because the whole feminist theory about seeking equality for the sexes is based on this concept of there being an inherent patriarchy, an inherently male-dominated structure which, due to its existence, automatically has put women in a subordinate position. And so when women, and whether that be Muslim women or Muslim feminist academics or non-Muslim feminist academics or anybody tries to go back and look at Muslim history and Muslim women's history, then we immediately take this model or this paradigm or this lens of feminism which developed from the late 19th century and apply that and try and see all sorts of problems in our history based on the values and the struggle and the issues that developed through modern feminism. And this is a mistake. Why? Because what we do when we do that is we completely wipe away our suratul mustaqim metaphor and we completely push to the side our suratul fatiha worldview and our worldview that we are on a journey. And as Imam Haddad explained in one of our previous episodes, these five lives of man, these five stages of the pre-dunya, the dunya that we're living in, the barzakh, the intermediary realm, the day of judgment, and then the afterlife. So all we're doing is looking and privileging this world and the material and political conditions and social and cultural conditions of women at this particular time without seeing all those things in this bigger picture and on this much bigger and grander trajectory of us being created beings and heading back on this journey to our creator, a journey which consists of two parts, the Seir Asayrul Ijbari, which is the fourth journey, which is this life itself that we're on, and Asayr al Ikhtiari, which is the voluntary journey, which is the choices that we make for ourselves whilst we're on this journey back to Allah. So this is the danger, and this is what I want to point out at this stage that as we go through our studies of feminism and as we look around us in our daily life and we see the pressures that are put on us through the dominance of feminism in the general social and cultural, political and particularly in academic discourse and narrative at the moment that we're all affected by all the time. So as we are here in our society and we have our current reality and also when we look back, then we need to remember that we are on this straight path. We need to know what that is and how to conduct ourselves on that straight path within 
the, the laws and the regulations that Allah has given us and that we have all our rights already inscribed and yes we need to make sure that other people in our societies also adhere to those laws and apply them and that's really where our struggle is making sure that the Muslim community is behaving properly according to Islam making sure that women are getting the inheritance when somebody passes away who they can inherit from making sure that women's marriage rights are being upheld and making sure that those who are making decisions for us are doing it properly, whether that be from our um, scholars and those in public positions. So that's the people that who need to be held accountable with regards to our laws. And that's really where our effort and our focus needs to be because that's the trajectory that we're on. So they're the two main points that I wanted to explain and talk about that we need to compare others to ourselves and not constantly put ourselves on the back foot and compare ourselves to others and that also we need to look at what model what framework what cognitive understanding are we having of ourselves currently and in history and where is that coming from and if we're only looking at ourselves through this feminist paradigm which has come about in the last hundred or so years and we're not looking at ourselves through the way that we are meant to understand ourselves as women with our full rights granted to us then we have a problem and if we're unable to reconcile our lives and our issues now because we're looking at everything with the wrong lens then we need to change that lens and we need to go back to our own history and our own roots and see how those women enacted the laws that they were granted and how the men around them enacted those laws and have continued to maintain and preserve them. So inshallah, I hope that that has uh, shed a little bit of light at the very beginning and inshallah our aim is to build upon that in uh, future episodes inshallah as we move now into the 20th century and we look at modernism and postmodernism and the different feminisms which have come up throughout the 20th century inshallah so may Allah grant us clarity and understanding and may we really connect to the gift of Islam and to the gift of Iman and may we honor it and preserve it and teach our daughters and the women in our society about how Islam has elevated us from the very beginning and how the struggles of other women have never been our struggles but what we're doing now is struggling against the aftermath of those women's struggles as we try and maintain ourselves on the straight path on the siratul mustaqim may allah grant us all that we need to know and the ability to act on it with sincerity inshallah walhamdulillahi rabbil alamin wa sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in i look forward to joining you for our next episode inshallah assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh